Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at 28 verses of the book of Matthew. In chapter 20, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. About 30 years ago when I was working for King Brothers Construction back in Redmond, Washington, which is a suburb outside of Seattle, there was a lot of work in Seattle. It was the fastest growing place in the nation and they were adding crews. We were up in the 20s in our crews and, and Bill was hiring more crew leaders and he interviewed this one guy and he was sharing with us later about how the interview went. And so this guy came in looking for a job and he sat before Bill and he told Bill, I'm built like Clint Eastwood. Now that was 30 years ago, mind you. I'm built, I'm built like Clint Eastwood and I can outframe anybody you've got working for you. And Bill, as impressive as he thought that was, allowed the guy to continue to look for a job. Because <laughs> he just explained to the guy, he said, you know, that's really not how we work around here. That's not the, that's not really the attitude or the mindset that I want for my company. And so, uh, I think, I don't think we really have a place for, a place for you here. And so this, this guy had kind of a, a pride and an, and an arrogance about him and Bill just said, I don't want to bring that into the company. It kind of surprised me, actually, because I saw Bill 
be very gracious toward a lot of people and their struggles and their problems. There were people that worked for him that at some time he would give them personal loans to buy a vehicle to be able to get to work with or give them lots of opportunities if they didn't show up to work on different days. I saw him really work with a lot of people, but there was some arrogance there and could be some problems if you try to have him work with other people. Bill just wasn't going to go there. He wasn't going to invite that kind of an attitude into the company. It was a fun company to work for. He treated you well. He treated you with respect. And at our crew leaders meeting, we shared with one another. When you had something that was kind of giving you troubles, you're having a hard time figuring it out, other guys would tell you how they'd done that kind of thing and worked together. You know, we kind of shared information and, and tips and things like that. And, and so Bill just really did not want to bring that kind of attitude into the company. Well, the reason that I bring that up and the reason that 30-year-old memory was triggered in my mind is because that's what I'm seeing in the gospel here. Jesus is dealing with his disciples and his disciples have a potential of focusing on self, of being a little more self-centered or even arrogant in their position as an apostle, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to avoid. When I first came into the passage, I was thinking we're going to learn about this parable. But as I tried to unfold and figure out what this parable is about, it expanded. It expanded both directions, back into what we already looked at last week and beyond where I thought it was going to, to grasp the larger context of the things, because in that I think we really find a key to understanding what Jesus is trying to teach His disciples at this time. And if I was to put it simply, the point Jesus is making through this with His disciples is that His kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, because that's what He starts the parable with, He's likening the kingdom of heaven to something close at hand, This kingdom is a selfless kingdom. We're going to go through this passage, and I see five five ways that he emphasizes this, beginning by looking back a little bit. If you remember last week, the passage right before this deals with a rich young man that came before Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him, keep the commands. He says, I've done that since I was a youth, although it was only a few select commands. I've done that since I was a youth. Jesus says, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the guy went away sorrowful that he couldn't do it. Upon watching that transaction there, the apostles say to Jesus, hey, we've done that. We have given up everything. We have left our businesses and our families and come and followed you. So what do we get? And Jesus tells them that you're going to be ruling the place. When I set up my kingdom, you're going to sit on 12 thrones under mine. And then also everybody else that does the same kind, makes the same kind of sacrifices that you do, says they'll get paid back a hundred times in the, in my kingdom. They'll get paid back a hundred times what they ever thought of sacrificing. But then all of a sudden Jesus throws on this statement. Look at the very last verse of chapter 19. It says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. We covered that in our passage last week. I mean, we read it and we studied that passage and we came to the end. It just, it just almost didn't seem to fit there. What is, where did that come from? But then if we continue to read into the next parable, which is part of the same conversation. Remember, this is all part of one conversation Jesus is having with them. Jesus begins to start to teach this parable. And when you get to the end of this parable, what's the point that he makes? In verse 16, he says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And then when we get down a little bit farther, we see... James and John's mom come and ask for that favor from Jesus. And we get down to the end of that. And in verse 26, 
Jesus says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so all the way through this passage is this common denominator of this one principle that the first will be last and the last will be first. What is the point that he's making? Well, as we follow that line through the passage, we see that the disciples have just realized that exactly what Jesus asked this rich young man to do, and he was unwilling to do, that the disciples were willing to do and had already done. And Jesus gives them this little warning, be careful. Because that is really, even though it's in a religious context, a spiritual context, that is a moment when pride can really come creeping in the door. And the disciples are realizing, hey, we've done that. We've, we've sacrificed. We've given up everything. And we're following him. And that pride can really start come creeping in the door right there at that moment. And Jesus is just sending them a warning. Be careful. What does he mean by the first will be last and the last first? The point that he's making is that we need to put ourselves last, put other people first. Just as Jesus gives us his own example later, in fact, we'll look at that, where he says, you know, even the Son of Man, even me, even the Lord of all this, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what it means to make yourself last and make other people first. They are recognizing that they have done something good, and Jesus, I think he's kind of telling them, don't, don't let this get to your head. If you go making yourself something, you go setting yourself up as first, patting yourself on the back too much, you're going to have a self-centered life and a self-centered world that you live in, and that's not the way the kingdom of heaven is. We need to be in a selfless kingdom. Then he goes on and tells this story. Who are the disciples in the parable? Because that's usually how it... Jesus' parables work. Uh, he'll tell a parable, and the people in the crowd around him usually have a part in it. Well, in this parable, you have people that are hired first thing in the morning, and they work all day long, a 12-hour day. They work all day long through the heat, through the hard work, and at the end of the day, they get paid what they were agreed upon. That would be the disciples. The disciples are the ones that were with Jesus from the beginning, and they were experiencing some of the same persecutions and hardship. And Jesus, again, is telling them, first to be last, last, first. And then he goes into talking about going to the cross, which everybody out there, you know, it's like Jesus explains, I'm going to go and I'm going to be handed over. Every time Jesus does this with them, it seems to be kind of like uh, in the movie Miracle. When the, the hockey coach is talking to the team and he's drawing on the board, I want you to, this guy does this and this guy does that. And he gets done and he says, all right, let's do it. And he turns around and walks away. And the whole hockey team is standing there with a kind of a jaw open look on their face. And one guy says, what's he talking about? And the other guy says, no clue. <laughs> and that's how the disciples are every time Jesus goes to talking about the cross. I'm going to the cross, tells them exactly what's going to happen. And they're like, it doesn't even go anywhere from there just on to the next event because they don't know nobody says anything it's just they just miss it but uh, then it gets into this thing with James and John and there's mom and she's asked this question can I want my boys to be in the two most prominent places in your kingdom and then the disciples have a problem with that and Jesus brings it all back to the same point again look in the world in the world they do that things this way it's different in the kingdom of heaven it's not selfish in the kingdom of heaven it's selfless in the kingdom of heaven. When you think about it logically, who would have it any other way? Because just as Bill King noticed with his framing crews and his framing company, if you fill crews with people that are selfish, that are there for what is there for them, things don't work out too well. But if you fill a kingdom with people that are selfless, then you can have a real unity to the kingdom and, and that kingdom can be 
awesome. That message just shows up over and over and over through the context. It engulfs the context. Jesus emphasizes it through that. Secondly, He emphasizes it through a revealing parable. Now, let's pick this parable apart just a little bit. You want to be careful as you do that with parables because parables are not really meant to stand on all fours. A parable is a story that teaches one point. And there's one point that's being emphasized here. And if you try to make everything represent something, uh, you'll go too far. You'll stretch it beyond what it was intended to do. And you'll put meaning in there that isn't necessarily there. Well, as we look at this parable, Jesus tells the story about this guy who has a field and he's going out to hire laborers. They had kind of a, a day laborer thing, kind of like if you think about like a union hall where you could go and find people to work for you. That was, that was common. This guy goes to hire workers and he goes out at the beginning of the day and he hires a bunch of workers. And it says that he agrees with them on a price. Now, the price that he agrees with them on is a good price. We know that a day's wage for a Roman soldier in that culture was a denarius. Now, a, a daily laborer would not have been the equivalent of a Roman soldier's pay in that time. So when they got a denarius for their pay, they were feeling good about it. They were feeling that this was a very fair wage. They're being treated well. And so they go out and they go to work. And then he decides he needs more laborers, and so he goes back in and hires some more and brings them out, tells them all. He doesn't even specify an amount. He says, whatever's right, that's what I'll give you. And then he does it a few more times during the day so that the last group comes out to work. They work for an hour, and they get paid for the whole day. When he goes to pay people, and then he pays the people that only worked an hour first before paying the others. The last will be first. The first will be last. Now, I'm sure that at the very beginning, when he pays those people that worked for an hour and he pays them a denarius, the people that worked half the day or in one of those other ranges, they're thinking he never settled on a sum with us. If it was a denarius for them, we might be making a couple today. But if you get down to the people that have been there all day long, when they're watching the paychecks get handed out, they're thinking, well, if they get what we agreed to, what are we going to get? This looks really good. When the owner of the field pays them out, when the foreman pays them the denarius that they agreed on, now they're disgruntled. And why? Well, they feel like they've been treated unfairly, unjustly. Look, we've worked all day long in the heat of the day. These guys came in the cool of the evening for an hour. Is it really fair to pay us the same that you're paying them? But in the parable, the owner has a point also. He says, did I not agree with you for a denarius a day? And we agreed. And I gave you a wage that was, was it an unreasonable wage? It was a decent, it was a very fair wage, was it not? And it was a very fair wage. And so he, he looks at it not as that I paid you too little, but that I paid them more than they deserved, which is the truth. He says, I do have the freedom to do what I want with what is mine, correct? And so if I want to pay them that, if I want to give them that, I'm within my rights to do it. Now, if you think about it and you think, well, why, why would the last group picked at the end of the day, there's only an hour left in the day and they haven't been picked all day long? Or maybe they got to go to work part of a day and came back. We don't know what the case is. But some authors pointed out that, you know what, these may be the people that are a little slower. These may be the people that aren't as good of workers. Maybe they're, maybe they're older people getting to where they've slowed down a little bit and lost a step. Maybe they're people that are, have a handicap in one way or another. And so people don't really pick them right off the bat for, for their work crews. And so for one reason or another, you got a bunch of people left that nobody hired them. Nobody wanted them. And then they ask the question, well, who, really, who needs the denarius more than another? So if you look at it that way, the owner of the field might have been doing something very generous in giving somebody a day's wage that can have a hard time finding somebody that will hire him for a day. 
But at any rate, whatever it was, as I said, we're starting to stretch it, I think, a little too far when we get to that point. The point that he makes is, I did a business deal with you, a business contract, and I fulfilled it completely. You should be happy. But you're not happy. You're disgruntled. Why are you disgruntled? You're disgruntled because these guys got some. They didn't earn it. They, they, they worked for an hour to get a whole day's wage. You recognize that it's a gift. But he says, I was generous toward them. But, it, but you didn't get it. They got it, and you didn't. He says, that's why you're upset. You're, you're disgruntled towards me for being generous. I'm allowed to be generous. And when you think about it that way, you recognize that these people did get a good wage for their day. They did get exactly what they agreed to in their contract. So they should really be happy. But now, let me ask you this. When they see that some other people got more than they earned, how should they feel? Should they not feel happy for that individual that got more? Happy for somebody that good fortune had shined upon them? But they're not. They're disgruntled because somebody else got something that they didn't get. And that's really the point of the parable that Jesus is making. He says the first will be last and the last first. We need to put ourselves last, put other people first in our kingdom. He's pointing out that those people did wrong. It's not the owner of the field that did wrong. It was those people that were wrong in the way they were looking at it. And the reason that they were wrong is that they should have been happy for the people that got more. Happy that those people also had a day's wage to be able to go home and provide food and clothing and shelter for their family. They should have been able to celebrate with those people their good fortune that they had received that day, which probably wasn't a common experience. And they should have even had more respect for the owner of the field who in his generosity went over and above to make sure that those families of those peoples had a day's wage to be able to help meet their bills. The parable ends up revealing the self-centeredness that, is, that can be creeping within our heart. And he's saying we need to be selfless in his kingdom. An opportune moment. I use that just to label the, the opportunity that, that James and John's mom took as she comes before Jesus. Because this emphasizes the same truth. In fact, it kind of acts upon it. The mother of James and John comes before Jesus and says, I have a question for you. I want you to do something for me. And Jesus says, what is it? And she says, I want you to take one of my sons and put him on your right hand and another son and put him on your left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm drinking of? And they say, yeah, we can drink the cup you're drinking of. I think they're, they're saying we're, we're locked in with you. We're, we're dedicated. We're committed. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup that I drink of. And that often means suffering. He says, you will drink the cup that I drink of, but you don't know what you ask. The father lines all that up. He says, you can't ask for that. So they're denied. But here's, here's the thing. And there's, you know, I remember when I was a kid. When I was a kid, sometimes you wanted to spend the night at a friend's house or you wanted him to spend the night at your house and goof around and that kind of stuff. And I remember every once in a while we'd try something. You'd think, you know what, there's a chance that I'll get to spend the night at your house. But you know what? If you have your mom ask my mom, then you got a mom asking a mom instead of a kid asking a mom. Better chances, right? And so we'd kind of connive and scheme that way a little bit sometimes to try to make sure you got to do what you want and spend a night at your friend's house. It appears to be kind of what's... I mean, I'm not saying James and John motivated their mom to do this. I don't know what happened there. But it seems a little silly, the mom coming and asking Jesus. These are grown men, for crying out loud. But the mom, in her love for her sons, comes to Jesus. If my mom ever called my boss and asked for a raise for me, I'd be embarrassed totally. <laughs> You've got to feel bad for these two guys. But she, in her love and compassion for her sons, and she comes to Jesus with this question. And, of course, she's denied. But notice what it says. When she's denied, it says that the others are indignant. 
I cannot imagine the razzing those two got. Your mom, your mom's asking Jesus for you to have the kingdom. Now, this is not a new subject for them. We've seen before how they've already had conversations about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. This was a common thought in their head. Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus, every time they do, Jesus tries to get them to stop thinking about that and start serving one another. Well, same is happening here. This, these guys' mom comes up and asks Jesus for this favor. And these guys become indignant, it says. Now, why are they indignant? Why are they indignant? Because they didn't think of it, I think. They're indignant because it's, if they get the two prominent places, that kind of lowers the other disciples a little bit in their estimation. It, it steps on their toes. That's why they're indignant. You know, I, I read something this week. Uh, it, was, it was about an, an interview, Odell Beckham Jr., he makes like, a, I think this year he's making $1.84 million for the year. So he can scoop by on that. Next year, he makes $8.4 something million for next year. And then his contract's up. And so he's already starting to talk contract deals. He wants, to, he wants a deal. And somebody was interviewing him. And in an interview, he said that he thought that he should make not only the most in the NFL for a receiver, which uh, the average yearly for the, the top paid receiver is a $17 million. So he's got to double his income of next year to do that. He, he thinks he should be the highest played NFL player, period. Which he's got to get up to about $25 million a year to do that. And reading through this interview, I found it interesting. Maybe a little bit absurd. But you know what, I'm, I'm not offended by it. You know why? There's somebody that's obviously showing a level of pride or arrogance. But I'm not put out by it really doesn't affect me whatsoever. It doesn't have really a crossroads that it hits in my life. But you know what? I have noticed that in my life, sometimes when I see somebody else's pride, I get indignant about their pride. When I get offended by somebody else's pride, I ask myself, why, why am I offended? Their pride's their problem. It's not my problem. So why, when somebody is, is arrogant about something, why do I take offense? And I've found that most of the times that I take offense... It's because their pride is stepping on my pride. <laughs> and that, that's why it bothers me. That's why I get indignant about somebody else's pride. It's not because I'm so great and humble. It's because I get indignant about their pride because it's stepping on the toes of my pride. And it's at, then it is my problem. And that's exactly what is happening with the disciples here. Why are the disciples indignant? Why are they upset with James and John over this request by their mother? They're upset because they want that position. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so now they're indignant. And so we see the same thing creeping up. When they need to be selfless, they're acting really more selfish. And this is a selfless kingdom. We also see it in just plain speaking. Jesus makes it very clear. He said, in the world, the bosses have authority over them. The rulers have authority over the people. And he just makes it very clear in the world, it works that way. In the kingdom of heaven, in my kingdom, it does not work that way. He said, in the world, you want to be the boss. In my kingdom, you need to be the slave. In the world, you want to be catered to. In my kingdom, you want to serve. In the world, you're in it for what you can get. In my kingdom, you're in it for what you can give. And he just plainly lays it out before him. If you're always looking at over your self-interest, over what you can get out of the situation, if you're looking for power, prestige, position, if that's what you're living for, if that's what your goals are, if that's what you're motivated toward, then you are motivated in all the wrong direction. 
Because Jesus says, in my kingdom, we measure you more by how well you serve, who you helped, what did you give, not what did you get. In my kingdom, it's much more selfless. We also see, lastly, that it's by teaching by example, because Jesus gives his own example in this. He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this is taken from kind of the, talk about top down. This is from the the pinnacle. This is the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's He's the central figure of all of Scripture. All of Scripture points forward to him or back to him. He's, which means he's a central figure of history. He's a climax of human history. And he says, even the Son of Man didn't come here to be waited on. We read about him through the Bible. We find that everything that was made through him, without him there was not anything made that was made. We find that he also sustains the world. So he's the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world. He is God in the flesh, God dwelling among us. This is the person that should be served in this world. But he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. If Jesus is not above serving, you and I certainly are not above serving. If Jesus is willing to be last, put his own needs and his own desires and his own last, then we can certainly put our own needs and desires and everything last. And Jesus says, those who mean last, that's where the greatness lies in my kingdom. That's what's first. Now, as, we, as he took all this trouble to emphasize this in five different ways, he emphasized this throughout this passage. Then how, how do we know? How can we, how can we measure ourselves? How can we look inside of ourselves, look into our own heart, and look through our own actions and words and see how we're doing? How, how can we make sure we're headed in the right direction? The apostles were given this warning at the end of the rich young ruler, be careful, the first will be last. They're given a whole parable that they can see themselves in to help teach it. They're told that Jesus is going to the cross and then they still end up in a fight over who's going to be best. So with all that laid right before him, they blew it. Well, I dare say with all that laid right before me, I blow it a lot too. But how can I do better? Well, within the passage also, we see, we see a couple, two indicators that we may be in trouble. These two questions will help us ask in our own hearts and our own lives if we're acting more selfish or more selfless. The first question that we see from within the passage is, do you celebrate others' good fortune? Do you celebrate others' good fortune? Because remember in the parable, these people were paid a very honest day's wage. They were paid a good wage, a wage that they agreed to. Somebody else got more. And rather than celebrating the, the good fortune that these people happened to fall into, they're disgruntled because they didn't get more themselves. And you know, that can creep into our lives. When we hear about something really good happening for somebody else, we should be able to celebrate that with sincerity. Celebrate that and be happy for them that this good thing happened to them. Or does our mind quickly go to, well, why didn't I get that? Because that's exactly what these people were struggling with. And if we're really selfless, we will celebrate the good fortune of other people. Secondly, there's another question I find within here. Are you offended at other people's pride? And that comes out of the question dealing with James and John. The disciples were offended because of their pride. And and as I already mentioned, I know that when I look at it in my heart most of the time, when I look at it, when I get upset by somebody else's pride, and then I investigate into my own heart further and say, well, why are you really upset? I find most often that if I'm really upset about something like that, I'm usually upset because in one way or another, it's stepping on my toes. It's their pride is crossing my pride. Other than that, I can't see a reason to be offended by their pride. Now, 
Pride and arrogance isn't pretty, no doubt about it, but I don't really see a reason to be offended by it. If somebody demonstrates pride and arrogance in their life, that's, that's their problem they've got to wrestle with. I've got enough of my own problems. But I notice if their pride kind of triggers mine, then I'm probably on the same problem as they're having. And so when other people are proud, boastful, arrogant, uh, though we shouldn't be attracted to it, neither should we really be indignant with it unless it's revealing something about ourselves. So in Jesus' kingdom, he wants us to be selfless. We see it from the context. We see it from the parable. We see it from, from Christ's own example. And we see it from the, the opportune moment with the James and John's mom. We see it from the plain teaching of Jesus that his kingdom is going to work differently than the kingdom of the world, which I think is a lot of times what trips us up because we're used to things functioning in a certain way. We, we live in a world where it's first come, first serve, and, and where it's, you look out for number one. And Jesus said, well, that's not the kingdom we're going to spend most of our time in. His kingdom's going to be very different. And just through his plain teaching, he says, you know what we need to do? Rather than striving to be first, we need to seek to be last. And there's the, there's the quandary. In, in seeking to be last, we exercise the first principles of Jesus' kingdom.